I'm going to try and speak from here. Stick up your hands if you can't hear me, okay? Can you hear now? Yes. Okay. Uh, thank you, Dawn, and thank you so much, Lynn, for, for coming to speak with, with us tonight. Lynn and I are really from the same generation. Um, one may think of feminism as one, well, radical, the, the radicals who were involved in feminism rather than radical feminists, one homogeneous lot, but I guess as it's, as, as, as life has gone on, we've all been having a conversation with each other and with the world about various topics. And I think the first thing to say about aging from my perspective is that I no longer can read a book without using, um, post-its, because I cannot remember exactly what I found so salient and so moving in, in, in books. So I'm going to refer to a few of these as we go on. I, of course, had a pad, which I had left behind. Um, I think it's been very interesting that um, there's been a number of books attempting to address the whole issue of aging some of which are quite psychoanalytically oriented and some of which are quite non-psychoanalytically oriented. And I'm thinking it's very striking that Anne Karp and you have written about this at the same moment because you're both bring a same kind of politics to thinking about aging but with very different responses to the issue. And what Lynn's done, and I think she'll talk a little bit about what she's done in this book, she's engaged in a way which I wouldn't have expected, which is with a lot of literary, with a lot of story, as a way to have her own discourse. Oh, my God, Stefan's bought me my pet. Isn't that gorgeous? Now, one of the things that really impressed me about this book is a phrase that I think Lynn writes in it, which is about the densities of aging. And the densities of our experience and the densities of knowledges and the way that all these different experiences, affects, and knowledges have to sit together. And I think that's a very, very interesting aspect. Um, I think our generation is very, very arrogant. We came of age at a particular moment in history, thought we changed the world in the mid-60s, went on believing we changed the world, despite the world changing against us and us experiencing huge losses politically, and our message of engagement and liberation and transforming society, becoming transformed in ways that was such a caricature of everything that those of us who were, I guess, on... On the left of feminism, or the feminist left, thought we, were do, thought we were achieving. And we saw the grotesqueness of women's experience turned into superwoman, achievement, empowerment, and a kind of new neoliberal project, which is very, there's seats in the front. Very, very, you'll feel better. All your friends are waving at you. Margaret's waving at you. Um, you see, there are people in the audience who've known each other for a hundred years. Excuse me. Not that. So I think we. 
I think in a way this book tries to do several things, and I'll ask Lynn what the hell she thought she was doing in it, but there's a, there's a writer and there's a reader. And I'm one of the many readers. And as a reader, there's something very mournful about the political losses of a generation, but also something very interesting about the personal capacities of a generation. So I'm going to shut up for the moment, let Lynn speak for a few minutes about what she thinks this project is for her, why she did it, and then maybe there'll be areas that we will contest with each other, I don't know, because we're so old that we can actually have conflict now without it being serious and without it being devastating, right? Which I think is an aspect... (coughs) not of gerontology, but of aging and complexity. And then perhaps we'll try and have a a general conversation all together. Thank you, Susie. It's wonderful to be here at the Freud Museum and especially to be in conversation with you, who I've known for so long and engaged in so many things together. Now, this book was written really as a sequel to my last book. Indeed, all my books are sequels, so my... uh, Editor and publisher there at the back is a bit worried about whether my next book's going to be a ghost story. (laughs) Because we're after old age. But in my last book, Making Trouble, the, um, (coughs) on life and politics, um, I was indeed dealing, as Susie said, with the hopes and also the losses of my generation. I don't think I was ever as confident as you suggested, least of all, in the mid-60s, and it was only with the decade of feminism in the 1970s that I think some of us began to think about making a real impact on the world. Although by 1979, when with others I was writing um, Beyond the Fragments, we were really aware of what we were up against and how little we were able, going to be able to hold on to unless we were able to form broader coalitions that were powerful enough to have a leverage on um, those in government. And in fact, that's what we didn't do even when we got new Labour. So, in one of those um, chapters in Making Trouble, I'm reflecting on the fact that um, whether or not we were personally confident, we certainly thought that we were going to make some difference to the world. And that led us to communicate everywhere this vision we had of a more egalitarian, sharing, caring future. And also, in my segment of the left, which most feminists were in, we were very much concerned with living our politics now. And so we were trying to embody that politics of a more caring, sharing time. Many of us, like me, were living collectively and um, trying to assert certain forms of autonomy and independence at the same time as knowing how much we relied on others for caring for our children, for caring for um, everything about our communities and creating the sorts of worlds we wanted. And it was precisely some of us who, facing the defeats of the 80s and 90s with the coming of Thatcher, paving the way for neoliberalism and the deregulation of the markets and uh, and the um, total evisceration (coughs) of the sorts of radical democracy we wanted, that um, many of us found ourselves not only living in a more 
unequal world and a much harsher, less caring world, but also personally, more of us were living alone and uh, facing exactly the sorts of futures, both publicly and personally, which we had spent our young lives working against. And so therefore, I was writing this book to see, well, what can we salvage? Because many of us are still totally engaged with the world. And uh, so it was in writing the book, I think, that I was talking myself into ways of ageing, ways of embracing life in old age without forms of disavowal, that we are old now. And uh, disavowal, I think, is one of the main ways in which people deal with old age. Uh, I don't think Susie completely agrees with me, so she might like to come in there, but in books written, in, in books that interview old people, they nearly all say, I don't feel old. I don't feel old. Paul Thompson, um, other people um, um, will say that they don't feel old. And indeed in surveys, in large surveys, People in their 50s tend to say they feel at least 10 years younger. In their 60s, they often, a significant number, say they feel 20 years younger and so on. So disavowing age is a big issue. And I wanted to think about that and how one might be able to affirm age at the same time as um, also affirming something about its challenges. Well, I think, okay, let's start there. Because what I found very interesting in, in this book... And it's something that's, Catherine, I can't remember her name, the woman from Time or Newsweek. Catherine Myers? Yeah, Immortality. Mm. Immortality. Immortality mm. is Catherine Myers. She has an, I mean, there's a big argument in, around now about I don't feel my age. Now, I, I think I'd like to approach it this way. And I want to know whether Lynn would be prepared to approach it this way. I think it's preposterous that I'm my age. Absolutely <laughs> preposterous. However, I don't feel like a youngster. I do feel that I have lived a long time. I'm very different from my children's generation. I'm really different than the generation of women that I work with politically who are in their 30s, late 20s to late 30s. I feel very different from the generation of, of people that I know who are in their 40s. And still I mean, but I don't feel young, right? I, I, I don't want to, and I think this is probably where I have a problem with this immortality issue, which I don't think you take up. But it's kind of part of what's being said. I do, I find it because in our generation or within the last 100 years, Whatever was respectful about old age has been collapsed into contempt. And capitalism hasn't caught up with the fact that if you actually have any spending power, you're a resource for old age, so they ought to revamp it as something kind of sexy or whatever. But what I have difficulty with, and I think it, it's a current not necessarily of yours, but of all the literature, nearly all the literature you draw on, except maybe from Coin Tobin, but nearly everything else is a ruefulness of aging or a triumphalism of how wonderful it is, right? There's those two polarities as though one isn't, and I know you're trying to say one is both 16, 30, 
and 70 all at the same time, because that is one's experience. But as though there is no development. And I think this is maybe part of the struggle, because as a psychotherapist, as a psychoanalyst, I actually am very aware of people's different levels of development because of their actual life experience and the way they tell their stories to themselves. And I don't know, is there a question that I've got with this? Probably. There's many questions, so Susan, you know, all too many actually, so I'm not quite sure where to come in, but it connects with a notion I talk about of temporal vertigo, whereas on the one hand, we're likely to say, I don't feel old, like Lewis Walpole saying, how can a 17-year-old like me be 82? That's a common sentiment, or Virginia Woolf saying, sometimes I feel 250 years old, she writes in her diary at 49, shortly before she commits suicide, Um, and other times I feel like the youngest person on the bus. We have this sort of um, um, time travel that goes through our head, and you might say, but psychoanalysts in particular ought to know a lot about that because of the atemporality of the unconscious, so that the past is always there in the present. So that's one aspect, I think, of this time-travelling or temporal vertigo, where on the one hand we do feel our age, and we certainly see ourselves aged by culture and feel the way we are seen or perhaps ignored, particularly if we're women, as we become old. On the other hand, you know, we only have to fall asleep to be 17 or 30 or any other age, or particular experiences take us back to that moment of an earlier time. So, so that problems of temporality are very much um, in my book. I think another reason, though, why many people disavow aging is not just this temporal vertigo I'm talking about, but also the realities of ageism, which, as Susie said, have surprisingly got worse in our time. And it's odd they should have got worse, because we're living a generation longer, you know, at least 30 years longer than we did a century ago. And so you would think that um, uh, there would be more people trying to embrace what it is to be old and perhaps uh, the um, pleasures associated with ageing. But what we really get is two, two opposed narratives One is the narrative of ageing well, which is this happy, clappy, I feel fine, which interestingly a lot of women have written about, more women than men, have talked about um, uh, the joys of being old. Some have done it quite well, like Margaret Mead in 19... uh, back in 1959, in her 50s, when she talked about postmenopausal zest and really upset David Frost by mentioning the menopause on uh, public... um, television, um, uh, but other people have talked about it in a way that simply suggests that it's better to be old than young. And this has been mainly women saying this, and, and also saying another surprising thing, particularly coming from sex radicals like Jermaine Greer, that the good thing about being old is that we're free at last, free from our sexual desire. And, and this I find slightly odd, and very much at variance with what men are saying, where they're saying, uh, many of them, in, in many, much of the literature by men, but also the reflections on ageing, for instance, um, uh, many I mention in the book, um, about how terrible it is for men to age, partly, I think, because they become more like women. You know, they lose that sense of, uh, of um, strength and, and impunity that they'd like to imagine they had 
when young, nobody really has any true impunity. But that, that sense of phallic bravado cannot be held on to in the same way. And so, oddly, you get more anguish expressed in a lot of men's literature than women's, although I also find women's literature, particularly in Simone de Beauvoir and in Doris Lessing, which does acknowledge the anguish of ageing. But I think what I wanted to say, and all this is a slight diversion from saying, yes, ageism is so much with us today, despite this idea that we can age well, because ageing well is partly not showing our age, not getting frail and not being dependent on the state. You know, we have a mantra today that is all about uh, the fact that we must all remain self-reliant, and it's a pathology to be dependent, when, of course, we are all dependent, whatever our age, and however young or male we might be, we're totally dependent on all sorts of supports. And uh, so trying to beat back that, those um, uh, idiocies of what it is to imagine ourselves always these tough, independent people, which is, which is the idea of the moment, is very much the space that I'm writing into and saying that to admit to frailty and dependency and neediness is all associated now with, in particular, old women. And, of course, mythologically, all the horrors of ageing have been placed in, in the visage of old women, the witch, the harridan, um, <coughs> all the other most hideous images of ageing very much tend to have a female face. And so that, too, is, is an issue absolutely present today. I just want to say one thing about whether things were better in the past. One reason I think why they seem better in the past is that we didn't, most people didn't live to an old age unless they were moneyed and had power. The poor tended to die a lot earlier, and also they didn't have welfare states to care for the age. So the situation is very different. When in societies that have more respect for the old, you often find, to the extent that they do, and there's usually exceptions, considerable exceptions, uh, they don't have as many old people, and the old people they do have tend to be the richer and more powerful members of that society. So we have to look at the conjuncture at all the time to see exactly what's going on in terms of people's fears and horrors of ageing. Okay, so what do I want to take out from that? I mean, one of the things that intrigues me is it, it seems like there's a battle going on in in the literature and in the conception, which doesn't quite accord to my experience of my friends, for example. I was thinking about a very dear friend of mine, professor of sociology. Um, he's a bit older than me, so he's in his seven, mid-70s. For him, it is a tremendous relief, unlike Philip Roth, um, that he is not as crazily sexual every minute. It's not, it's not for him a loss. Now, I think that's very interesting because I think our stories of masculinity have been constructed. I do think Philip Roth is one of the greatest writers in the world. So, I mean, even I'm reading the English language rather than anything else. So I'm not going to, um, but in a way he's spoken for, a mas for masculinities which I don't think is accurate, in the same way that we're now, and that's why I welcome all these books and these things, because we're speaking for everybody, when actually one of the things that's so extraordinary about um, all the voices is 
if you think about the voices of our generation, they're talking about complexity and having curiosity towards oneself and being engaged and being, and, and I think you bring this out in the book, and being in wonderment as well as being in grief. It's, there's, not, it's not, there's not one aspect to this. And that part of the rhetoric that's been so damaging is to shove one in either one category or in another category. You know, there's no such thing as sex after certain... Well, no, actually, there's late love and there's late sexuality. Um, there's no such thing as... Um, there's either sorrow and grief and mourning... Or there's like, no, it's all okay. And I think what's important in your book, but what's important for those of us of a certain age, is how we meld all of those things, how we live in that present, in the present, with passions, with hurts, with anguish, with delight, with sorrow, with... I mean, some people's fury is actually diminished at this point. But the hurts don't go away. And I suppose what I suppose I suppose what I want to say to you is, and maybe this is because of my position as somebody who works with people, is I do see developmental things happening. I do see people coming to terms with earlier phases of their lives that don't get reiterated in exactly the same way, so that certain aspects of them are no longer twenty. Certain themes do not touch them in the same way. Certain forms of abandonment don't speak to them in the same way. Certain forms of fury as a defense structure don't work in the same way. They have relics of it, but it's not what's driving Yes, well, all that is true. But to return to the first bit of what you said um, on the gendering of old age, mm -hmm. which is very much an issue of masculinity and femininity, Philip Roth I think, doesn't speak for every man, despite the fact that he is sure that he does. And he did uh, win the International Booker last year. A lot of people are reading him and do read him globally. And he wrote a book called Every Man, in which he insists that um, you know, the big problem for men aging is the loss of the sense of infallibility, the loss of phallic prowess, which is what... Um, Martin Amos and so many other people who write specifically about masculinity say. Now, it is true that there are alternative discourses of masculinity, and they are very significant, although if you look at what is being consumed, for instance, the massive consumption of Viagra, uh, that would suggest to us that our alternative conceptions of masculinity are still minority conceptions rather than the dominant conception of masculinity. And when it comes to women and ageing, what I think um, the disavowal of sexual desire, which I see in so many older women, for instance, uh, not just Jermaine Greer, but if we take one of the latest, Virginia Ironside, who's now um, uh, writing and performing, saying old age is better than youth, and one of the pleasures of old age is precisely leaving sex behind. Um, I think what's going on there is the reality that femininity and womanhood has been so associated with the body, and that is a body which once women are menopausal, um, is particularly in a straight world, no longer seen as desirable by many men, particularly 
for women who end up on their own. The statistics are stark. They are really stark. I'm not inventing them. They're like that. This very tight cross that the older a man is and the more status and resources he has, the more likely he is to have a partner and to be cared for. And it goes the other way for women. The older a woman is, and it makes no difference what her status and resources are, the more likely she is to end up alone and without someone living with and caring for her over the over middle age. So, so, so that that is a, a stark reality that that we have to think about. Uh, there are lots of things to think about in that. For instance, I think there's greater sexual fluidity in women's sexuality, and and not all older women are disavowing sexual desire. Though I see every reason to understand why many women do, because um, to assert sexuality, particularly in a straight world, if they're on their own, creates such vulnerability of rejection that it becomes easier to disavow it and push it aside. So that is another issue, and you were saying various other things which are escaping me now, me so too. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure that was something that was utterly crucial that... Um, well, I suppose I might come at it slightly differently. Let's stay with this, because for many of the women that I've worked with over the years, celibacy in long-term relationships has been a fact of life, whether they were straight or gay relationships. So that there's a passionate attachment which is not expressed sexually. So... That's an interesting question, which then has to be rethought in later life. Because it isn't that the women were very sexual and then there was a, a big loss in older life. It's that they don't know how to make attachments, the kind of attachments they might have made in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, unless what's happening is that the sexual is a piece of the attachment. I think I would question, I do question in the book and try to open out what on earth we mean by the sexual. And it wasn't just Foucault who pointed out that so many things are condensed into the sexual and um, a lot of it is just closeness and comfort, recognition. No, I want to talk about, no, let's call it the erotic. Let's actually right, talk about sexual practice. The physical erotic. Well, the physical erotic as well doesn't just uh, mean... Genital engagement, I don't know if you wanted to mean that. I no, mean, stroking I... and <laughs> um, all sorts of other things. But um, I don't <laughs> think that you have to have the genital erotic to form relationships or hold on to relationships. Yeah, but then we, I think we need to be really thoughtful about this because if women have lived in a lot of... If, if, if my experience and some of my colleagues' experience is accurate, but there's been a lot of non, there have been a lot of very strong attachments, intimate attachments where there's jealousy. It's not like it's okay for the lover to go and sleep with somebody else, even if you're not sleeping with the lover. Then I think we're talking, I, I mean, I think you know what I'm talking about, and I don't actually want to use the word libido in its biggest sense. I want to use it quite specifically because because I want to contrast it with the way masculinity has represented itself. Mm. So I think I want to push you on a little further on this in terms of 
women's engagement with their own with their own sense of the sexuality and their own sense of diminishment or relief or re-engagement. I mean, there's a whole lot of stuff that I want to push you on about this. Okay, but I still think that I have to hold on to some broader conception of the erotic which can absolutely involve whether or not one is celibate um, if one is in a relationship knowing oneself to be an attractive person to another you know, knowing that one's body isn't seen as abject and hideous and I think that that is what many women out in the world particularly women on their own often feel you know that you, we hide away we hide away as older people because of that fear of how we will be seen, and particularly how we'll be seen if we show signs of our physicality. So that I, I, we are approaching it. I don't think we disagree at all, but we're coming at it slightly differently. And, and I just remembered something else I didn't say, but we can come back to this, which is that in my book, what I'm also trying to point out about aging, which is something you did mention in the last comment you made, the second last comment you made, which was about the older you get, the more you manage to cope with life and perhaps and hopefully cope with life slightly differently. And so we often imagine when we're older that we were happy and everything was wonderful when we were young. We look at photos of how beautiful we were. We were all so beautiful, you know. We were all sort yeah, of we didn't enjoying life. Yeah. Exactly. And this is a counterfactual. We didn't experience life like that. We were often particularly mournful and upset, precisely because it might have been the first time we felt rejected and and um, um, so miserable in the world. So understanding that um, loss and and mourning and, and simply seeing that life has as much tragedy in it as, as joy is something that I think it becomes easier to handle as you age, or I hope it becomes easier to handle it as you age. Although this is at odds, I think, with the whole happy, clappy happiness indexes that are, are being promoted today. Yeah, but I mean, you and I would probably agree, I think, that, I mean, the reason I don't like the happiness indexes mm. is because they're so synthetic. You know, the capacity to be happy, to me, is the capacity to be bored, to be upset, to grieve, to be delighted, to be charmed, to hurt. I mean, it's the whole, the thing that I have probably said in this room a hundred times, you know, when they say to me in New York, have a great day, I just want to say, can't I just have the day that I'm having? Right? Because there's nothing more synthetic than the to be, than being told that I have to have a certain kind of day which has got sparkles on it. <laughs> so it's not that, I, I mean, for me, happiness is actually a very rich concept. And it, ha is, is, it, might be, it might be feeling fury at one moment and feeling desire at another and feeling blah as another. I mean, it, it, it's the capacity to feel on all those registers. And feeling blah is part of the register if you have the other registers, right? So, I agree with you. I don't like the happy clappy, but I don't want to lose the whole, I don't want to lose the whole conversation really about 
desire and passion, because one of the things your book brings out is not just that there are some women who continue to have desire, but that there's desire to still be engaged with the world in a very active sense, whether it's collectively or whether it's individually. And there's some confidence, without going to happy clappy, there is some confidence that comes of having gone through experience and having thought about, reflected, experienced, digested it, which puts you on a different platform. Would you accept that? I do accept that. Uh, And indeed, my last chapter is called Affirming Life, where I'm saying many times over that um, being able to feel anything strongly is what it is to engage with life. And almost at any age, actually particularly in adolescence and and many teenagers are worried about the meaning of life and is that all there is and, and um, uh, you know, what's the point of anything. I think that's a very strong adolescent feeling. Whereas I think one advantage that might come if we're lucky with ageing is seeing, as I said, that being able to be enraged, to accept sorrow, all these things, to feel these things powerfully are to engage with life and what life is and what it is to lead a meaningful life. So, you know, so joy is never unmixed from pain. It's never unmixed from conflict. And and for a start, you know, it's always likely to disappear at any time. So, you know, people like uh, Derrida, for instance, said in his final statement before he died, he never um, felt so um, alive to life as when he was dying, and he often never felt so happy as when he was aware of and thinking about um, some of the bad aspects of his life. And on and the reverse is also true. In the moments of happiness, he often was most fearful of the disappearance of those moments. And so there's always an intermixture of that happy, sad <laughs> uh, joy, sorrow that is present. And, and being able to think about that um, and and... And explore that seems to me something that we might be able to gain more in ageing and also, I suppose, to share. So another point of the book, my book, is very much about the importance of being able to keep hold of intergenerational bonds. And I, I see the moment, the present moment, very much trying to put us in our boxes, you know, like our dreadful Minister of Education, David Willett's writing this ghastly book, The Pitch, in which he says, which is subtitled Why Older People Have Stolen Their Children's Future and Why They Should Give It Back. You know, just trying to get us all lined up against each other. Whereas it seems to me, since every day, everybody is growing older, whatever their age, the more we can actually uh, feed into and support each other in terms of the changes we'll all be having, then um, the more likely, you know, the more enriching it is both to be young and to be old, if we can get that right, if we can build those bridges in a useful way. Okay, I want to ask you two questions and then kind of open it up and make two comments. One is, I don't, I don't think that you're saying that the intensity of adolescence and the forging of identity against, which I think is a lot mm. what, what you have to do, you have to be exactly like everybody else and then you have to differentiate, right? Mm. Is the same as as the intensities of older age. I think the intensities have a very, very different 
you've got the chords, but you've got a lot of, hell of a lot of notes you can play in between. But you may feel the sharpness of something very differently than I think adolescents. I don't think it's the same. So I want to ask you yes, that. Oh, I don't, I don't think it's the same at all, but um, uh, the intensity of loss can come in incredibly strongly, as it has for many, for me and my friends with the loss of Stuart Hall, who was such a mm-hmm. mentor and um, presence for us. Um, however rarely we might have seen such a presence, and so the intensity of that loss is very sharp, yet they will be over different things, but I, I think the intensity of loss and not wanting to go on. How can we go on? How can we go on in this situation with this hole that's just opened up before us? That is the only way in which I'd say there might be certain ways of communicating how in fact life goes on. And and life goes on precisely because, as Stuart Hall said, life isn't a self-project. Life is about our relations to others. And so long as we give meaning to the lives of others, so long as we're in some way caught up in the lives of others, then our lives too have meaning. Uh, even if uh, there's this distraction <laughs> going on in the background. <laughs> okay, the other thing I guess I want to talk about or ask you about that interests me is that I think you inadvertently segment generations because you're dealing with aging or age. And I think I felt, where are the children? Not necessarily the biological children, but where are the children, the grandchildren, the nieces, the nephews? There was something there that, that decontextualized lives of the people that I know and we're all and we're the same kind of age where we have both intimate and political contact and for me clinical contact with people across the age span. But we don't all I mean I No no we don't all but it's it's kind of unusual <coughs> not to have any kind of generation below you that you're engaged with. I wish that were true, uh, and I think it's crucial to um, understand the joys as well as the challenges of, of grandparenting and um, you know, the future generations coming up behind us of nieces or nephews or whomever. But I mean, there is a lot of uh, work in our papers, a, a lot of research in our papers every day, including today, showing that a lot of old people do not see anybody. A lot of old people are not seeing anyone at all, particularly with the social policies we have now where their carer comes in for five seconds, she's been tired, and goes off again. So those of us who are lucky enough to have younger people we do see and can see um, certainly have something to... I know, to, but in your book you're yeah. not talking about... You're not talking about G4S or whoever the hell has those contracts where they're timed for seven minutes to come in and out. Mm. You're actually talking to the literature and you're talking to the experience of loss a lot 
and mourning and aging. And that's, that's, so I don't actually think that's what you're talking to in this book. So yes, that is the political, social situation. But in your book, I felt a loss or a lack mm, mm. of a generational conversation mm. that wasn't, um, I was, I was interested in it. Mm. I was interested mm. in the absence of it mm. as part of, part of the nexus of relationships, mm. really. Well, to me, I feel I did talk about um, the joys of grandparenting and so on, but as well, I probably turned more to political engagement in the chapter I call Flags of Resistance in terms of thinking about um, the sorts of bridges we can build between young and old and the significance of um, uh, how we as older people communicate our experiences, learn from and try and learn from, if we can, what younger people are doing today. And I quote people like uh, Adrian Rich and Grace Paley, Adrian Rich talking about um, radical happiness, the radical happiness she feels in those social moments where across the generations and across all sorts of differences, people are coming together because they have something to celebrate. And uh, so I feel I do say it is, there's always a potential of people coming together in all our colours, red, green and grey. You know, there's the grey panthers that they have in the States, which very much pushing the idea of cross-generational activity and, and that perhaps it's easier for older people to do something outrageous every day because they're less worried about um, their status in the world sometimes than they were when young. And so, I, you know, to me, I do talk about um, okay, well, maybe generational things. I think so. you do at a political level, and I think it's really funny to me that older women's liberation used to, used to be 40-plus for it to be an hour. Right? Do you, do you remember yeah, that? Yes. And... Um, I met one of my dear friends who was like 50 at the time. And I was probably 30-something, and I thought, gosh, she's really in a whole other generation. And in a way, that's both true and not true anymore. It's both true and not true. And um, so I'm kind of interested not just at the level of the political, but at the level of for those people who are able to be engaged in all sorts of things in life that in a way with uh, that they're, they're part of their dependency is the engagement with the cross-generational story oh, you don't I have to go to Occupy to feel it which is you know a great place to feel it but it's kind of been very interesting for me to experience mm. it mm. in different ways but maybe we should open it and up and a lot now. of older people do go to Occupy yes they do <laughs> shall we ask people to coming on this a bit mad rambling conversation of don't feel you have to ask a question but if you're making a comment make it short enough so that it doesn't dawn there's somebody in the third row Mm. Uh, people say who they are Uh, if you'd like to yes um, oh well I really really enjoy your um, uh, I suppose my question is about empowering women physically because you talk intuitively in the book about this lack of, of confidence that happens to women, obviously with invisibility and so on. 
Well, how, how could we turn that around, do you think? How could that improve? What, 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 what measures could we put? I mean, what's your theory, really? Should we take a few before I come back? Or? Yeah. Uh, Whatever you're comfortable with. This is your show now. <laughs> <laughs> Does anyone else have thoughts on that before I come back? I think you're stuck with that. All right. Oh, sorry. sorry. That's fine. That's fine. How do we turn it around? Well, not everybody wants to turn it around. There are other ways of enjoying aging that, um, enjoying old age that both women and men have talked about, which is the enjoyment of solitude and, uh, search for the ecstatic in life and so on. You know, Sarah Maitland has written about that and so have other people. And I, um, you know, I take note of that and uh, think that it is an aspect of ageing, this saving the moment and going out for looking for the great experience. And, and um, Rosalind Belvin also talks about that. You know, she no longer, well, no, she says she does feel sad at all she has lost, but nevertheless the joy of um, nature and the joy of just being there, um, watching the skies and the seas and so on is uplifting. So that is one route uh, some people take. The other route is, is the route of um, uh, the Great Panthers. I've forgotten who was the person who started the Great, great Panthers um, in the States, uh, who um, just went on living as she'd always lived in her big house, inviting young people into it and, and saying, I'm going to do something outrageous every day. Maggie Coon or something she was called, I think. Um, so just staying very engaged with the world, which would be the way I've been rich and Grace Paley and others did. But okay, for some other people who just um, want to go on with their <laughs> more everyday lives and are perhaps not so politically engaged, I can um, only think of the roots through the family, through the grandchildren and so on, which are obviously there, but also through friendships. And I do think old, old people have been very good at um, uh, maintaining friendships, and, and particularly older women, women because it's something that um, feminism so strongly argued for the importance of, and that was female friends. Now, sometimes I think that uh, we can be rather cavalier and romantic about how strongly we can rely upon our friendship networks. I still think there are often limitations to the responsibilities which, friend feel, which friends feel for um, their other friends, and I try and discuss that in the book. Nevertheless, part of... Um, the joys of, of ageing has to involve being there together with um, uh, one's own age cohort, as well as this other aspect we've been talking about, building those generational bridges. And the, Diana Attill talks about it. For instance, the extraordinary pleasure she can feel when some young person is actually listening to her. Uh, and also just trying to keep doing what Simone de Beauvoir says is, we have to try and keep doing whatever it was <coughs> that gave meaning to our lives. But not everyone will be in a situation to be able to do that because they will be being continuously overlooked. And so if they are living on their own fragile, um, which 
which I do take you know, seriously as a, as a real segment of our population today. That means trying to um, do exactly the opposite of what all our welfare reforms are doing and thinking of the value of caring and what it means to keep people engaged in society and not making them feel worthless, dependent people. So there's so much work to be done on that front, which people like Yvonne Roberts and Joan Bakewell and others have attempted to do, to, to build that movement uh, of, um, of rethinking the importance of care and also seeing that we need to care for people as well. You know, in a caring relationship, we always think that it's just the one being um, um, cared for who's a problem and the one doing the caring who is, you know, giving everything. Whereas it seems to me that however much we might be fragile and being cared for, we still can have things to give back. But we have to rethink uh, what caring is all about. relates to Louise Eichenbaum's and my work, which is that we really made a very, very strong argument um, against the notion of that there's no, I suppose the argument we had is there's no such thing as autonomy without dependency and independent relationships, interdependent relationships. And that, of course, that comes from our experience in the women's liberation movement and in relationships, but it also comes from psychoanalysis, which is there is no such thing as a person who doesn't have history and who hasn't been dependent and who whose dependency has meant something for the person on whom they're dependent on because they they themselves are dependent on being the person who's the giver. So it's a very complex relational nexus. And I think it's part of having lost that argument in the Thatcher years with the promulgation of an ideology of independence at the same time as government's whole dependency was to support the infrastructure of capitalism and not anything else. I mean, everything was moved to, to, towards that. That in a way, it's possible that New Zealand and everywhere else, including us, can now make assaults on the notion of um, yes. what constitutes 
human relationship. And this, this horrible, hateful notion that dependency has become a dirty word as opposed to the very nature of what it means to be human. It's interesting because it also ties in with what's happened to feminism itself so that certain things that we argued so strongly for, like the rethinking of welfare and dependency, get swept aside for a sort of new feminism, one particularly loved by the Tories, which is we must have more women in the boardroom or women can be at the top. And it's definitely the case that um, the sort of attack on the elderly as selfish and greedy and so on that starts in particular in the 1990s is simply part and parcel with the neoliberal attack on the welfare state. So, of course, the feckless and the unemployed, everybody who's seen as in need of welfare support is to be attacked as, in some way, uh, unworthy and and, um, discreditable. And uh, it is really tragic, but it is also part of, as I see it, the neoliberal takeover of the state, that even under new labour... That's what we had. You know, we didn't have any ideological fight back um, that was talking about um, public good, you know, the importance of the public sector. So the privatization of the public sector and the handing everything over to market forces is very much then um, uh, what ties up with the idea that you know, benefits are not an entitlement, they're a privilege in any way, they're not even, you know, nobody should be on benefits. It's sort of pathologizing of those on benefits. And so, you know, there is so much work to be done. And so, you know, can we get back to anything near the old social democratic mm-hmm. formula with all its problems? Um, because what we're talking about ties in with that. And what you're describing knowingly or not, is a part of that neoliberal assault. Okay, yes. Mm. Now, whether, I mean, whether people making it are quite aware of what they're doing or not. Mm. While people are thinking of a question or a comment, I want to talk to you about late love. All right. I think you've got things you might want to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, in the book, um, I'm trying to tackle the reasons why older women, and particularly, and surprisingly to me, older feminists, unlike Simone de Beauvoir and Doris Lessing, um, are talking about this notion of being free at last from desire in its broadest sense, including late love. And uh, I've given the reasons why I think that is, that uh, it's a way of avoiding, as I said, consciously or unconsciously, that terrible feeling that um, you are likely to have to put up with if you're a woman on your own showing any desire. And also the fact that... um, you're less likely to be successful, especially in heterosexual arenas. And I say that because there is some evidence, and not only coming from Susie and I, but that there is 
Also, a certain uh, greater sexual fluidity in women's um, late love, late life experiences uh, of desire, whatever form it takes, which I think, uh, why I suspect there's a greater fluidity in women's, in the possibility of the sorts of relationships and love relationships women can have in late life is because we actually still do have that firm tie between masculinity and a certain sort of um, straight sex. Um, and I take that from books like, say, Lisa Diamond's Sexual Fluidity, where she argues that if you look at people's sexual orientations, straight, gay, whatever, um, there is a continuity much more continuity in men's identifications, whether they're straight or whether they're gay, and particularly if they're straight, than there is in women's um, long-life identifications, and that uh, there seems to be more possibility of change. Now, these are real generalizations, because I don't think desire is something that's it's easy to sort of just be what we ever want to be, but there just seems to be greater possibility of women having different um, experiences. And another um, person who seems to confirm that is an American um, feminist, lesbian feminist, who has worked with the aging LGBT community called Amber Hollybaugh, who um, has coming out groups. And in the coming out group, she says, for the over 80s, they had to close it down because there were just so many of them. So that's together with certain other things I notice, and this it's still speculative, does suggest to me that um, it's not the case that all older women are just issuing late love, and indeed that some of them are exploring it in new and interesting ways. Is that what you thought I might say? I thought you might talk personally. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't usually, actually, but um, but I can and I do mention... Well, you've written personally, yes, yes, so I, do I think you might as well talk yes, personally yes. because you're in the Freud Museum. Yes, okay. <laughs> well, I can talk... Um, actually, my story is quite interesting because... Um, I've always been known as someone who um, has written about straight sex. I have a book called Straight Sex, which my publishers also are going to reprint to my delight very soon. And in that, I try and talk about, and I am talking about, the fluidities within straight sex and why I reject the radical feminist notion that it's only and always about male power and women's subordination. Nevertheless, it's a defense of straight sex. And I was invited to a conference in um, 2005 on uh, the topic heteronormativity, a fruitful concept. <laughs> a fruitful concept. Anyway, I was asked about 18 months before um, uh, it happened. And um, uh, so I said, oh, okay, I've already started talking about straight sex. But then... By the time it did happen, I was well into my book on old age, and I didn't want to go and talk about sex. I just didn't want to, and so I wrote back, and 
I got the letter from the person organising it, a woman called Agnes Bolso, and she said, we haven't heard anything from you. Um, are you an anarchist or something? And I, <laughs> usually if someone agrees to do something, they do it. And uh, I wrote back saying, explaining why I didn't really want to do it. And um, anyway, she wouldn't accept that. Once people agree to do something, they do it. And um, so I thought, okay, then I'll just go and, and I'll say what I think about um, um, heteronormativity. And I'll say, no, I don't think it's a very useful concept, not for um, um, people when they're aging, because actually queer politics has said almost nothing about the situation of older straight women. It was very funny because I was the first opening speaker and someone... And the, you know, the president of the university was introducing it and saying, well, I don't think anyone's going to say heteronormativity isn't a useful concept. Heteronormativity isn't a useful concept. <laughs> At least for older women. And then I said, you know, it seems that if you're queer, you have to be forever young. And I went on like that. And it all went very well. Anyway, afterwards, this person who was chairing my session said, oh, do you want to come back and have dinner with me? And I said, hold on, hold on. I've got to find out who this Agnes Bolso is who insisted that I come. So I went and asked them, who's Agnes Bolso? And she said, oh, why, do you think you'll get a better offer? And I said, who's this person? Anyway, of course, it turned out it was her, and she was the one I insisted that I came. And that I'd come. And um, it was after that then that we had a very pleasant dinner party with all the other speakers, and somehow a week later she arrived in my house to continue the conversation. And... Um, then gradually her desire became clear to me and uh, I reciprocated. So we started a relationship um, now about um, nearly eight years ago, uh, which has been extremely interesting in terms of um, uh, not... um, It hasn't changed my ideas, and I suppose I still, in a sense, I still identify... A straight, but it has opened her out um, and made me think about <laughs> all sorts of other physical possibilities between people and how one loves a particular person in particular ways and somehow getting further away from those strictly gendered notions. I think you have a slightly different uh, <laughs> story. Yeah, but I'm not on this platform <laughs> <laughs> your book does is open up the space for all of us to think about um, how we age and of age and, and create space for conversations which often isn't there. And I'd just like to say that I've been in an old women's group which actually has lasted for 20 years it's still going on um, and in fact very definitely has been a space for having kind of conversations that on the whole are not very possible uh, in everyday life but, um, and we don't have any particular uh, agenda other than uh, we're there because we want to think about uh, what getting older means for us. And we've all been through you know, all the endless life events that tend to happen. But I would say that probably the thing that uh, we keep coming back to is our bodies and our feelings, what particularly our feelings about our bodies um, and just how hard that is, uh, uh, particularly for women, I think, because our bodies are always so much on the front line. But I think one of the things that we um, probably haven't talked very much about, and I said hasn't really been 
part of this conversation doesn't figure much uh, in your book or indeed in many of the books now I've written about AIDS is um, how, we, how death comes nearer yeah. about death um, and uh, that it is, death is on the agenda in a way that it mm. obviously isn't when you're younger and that's something really horrible happens um, so uh, well I suppose I wondered what you both thought about that and about what kind of um, frameworks you, you would have for thinking and talking about it and I was very interested in what you said about what Stuart Hall said but life is not a project. Um, a self-project. A self-project, that's right, sorry. Uh, and that maybe that helps one think about death in some way. But, anyhow. Well, I do talk about it a little in the book, in, time, in terms of thinking about where does all this fear of old age come from. And um, in Freud, for instance, who had it very badly, you know, and declared at 49 that um, everybody, but particularly women, become more rigid and um, ineducable. Um, uh, and also described his own life 20 years later as uh, living in a complete um, a wasteland, a lunar landscape where nothing could happen. And interestingly, this is in response to being wished happy birthday by uh, Andreas um, Salome, uh, who says, I completely disagree with you about the uh, lunar landscape. I like old age, and I'm very glad that I was able to enjoy it, and so on. So, um, what it made me think about is whether Freud is right to think, as I think he thought, that, um, and he suffered a lot in old age, of course, he was very ill, but he thought that um, old age and mortality were, were sort of the same thing and that there was nothing more to think about. And, and what I thought in my book, and I do say, is that I do separate them out, and I think people have separate fears. Some people, a fear of old age, and particularly those men talking about um, uh, the dependencies of old age and feeling that they've been become more effeminate and so on, and that is their big fear, more than mortality. And I compare that with Julian Barnes' writing, who's someone who doesn't show such fears of, being dependent at all, but claims that from the age of 14 he's woken up every night frightened of dying. So I do separate that out a bit, but of course they're not completely separable. Um, and uh, and I, I, I even asked my friends, well, what, what do you most fear about old age? Is it dying or is it dependency? And most of them said dependency, which is dependency and illness and you know, all those bodily symptoms and becoming invisible. And that's certainly how I feel. And so that's what I dwell on more than mortality. But I, I think perhaps people just are different in terms of how much they, the dread of mortality is to the fore. I mean, maybe you've got something to say about that, Susan. Well, I think I think about mortality and this deep personal rather than as it's showing our limits. And that's part of the human project. And I think I think this all the way through, that you have an imaginative life or a fantasy life or a life of wishing to do and act and feel. But at the same time, there's always limits. There's, there's all, And that is what part of 
I think, becoming 30, becoming 40, is this understanding the engagement with the, the imagination and the limits. And that, that one, one is both elastic and yet it's, it's constrained. And, and that seems to me what's interesting about life. That's why I can't stand post-humanism where what you can do is anything you can imagine, you can do, right? Because that seems to me to take kind of the fun out of it. Um, and maybe that's too philosophical for most people, but I, I think, so I can't conceptualize death, but I can conceptualize this limit or the dialectic between openness and, and, clo- and, and a border and a boundary between... the the openness of intimacies and the delicacies and also the whole issue of separation. And I think by the time you've got to... I mean, people are having to deal with death a lot because of very early cancers and things that are occurring. People have experiences of loss quite early on in ways that I don't remember growing up, partly because they had a much smaller community... But death, you know, if somebody had lost a parent, that was a really big deal. So-and-so doesn't... There was the war. Yes, but I'm a post-war baby. Mm-hmm. And in, in the kind of school I went to, it was, it was unusual for somebody to, to be motherless or fatherless. Very unusual. Whereas that isn't true. We're, people have lost friends in their 40s. You know, environmental carcinogens are such that you know, there's a lot of people. So there's something about, I don't know if this speaks to what you're saying, what you're interested in, where there's been rehearsals of loss, or people have been in relationships for such a bloody long time and lost those, that there's been those kinds of mornings, which seem that if you can live through them, you refresh something about being in the present without, with those losses, not without them. So I kind of, that's how I think about it. Yes, I would just add uh, two things. One, I think these groups of older feminists are incredibly interesting, and they're certainly on the rise. And I know there was a, a coming together of them quite recently, and I think we're going to see more. I think we're going to have a new consciousness raising of older women, actually, for our generation, which is it's rather nice, one way or another. Um, but the other thing that will be raised in those groups is the incredible diversity of our experiences in old age. And um, so, you know, some people will be aging with a lot of pain and a lot of anxiety and a lot of neediness and other people won't. And so how we get our head around that and what to do around that is, is going to, particularly in relation to this government, for heaven's sake, um, is, is such a, a large issue uh, and I think also, I'm sure I am afraid of dying. I think most people are afraid of dying, but that we put it off, you know, it's going to happen to someone else, but it's not going to happen to us today. It's not going to happen to today. And so I think aging is about this saving today, saving the moment, and, and, and in a way, because we know that we are mortal, um, it enables us to do that more easily as we age. I actually quote um, John Updike talking about that when he's describing uh, in his uh, collection My Father's Tears, which I found uh, very moving actually, where uh, apart from all the usual reflection on adultery and so on that he has to go in for, he also has old people, uh, uh, 
or men always, he's not very good at women, thinking about um, how you know, looking out to the ocean, taking their pills and feeling tranquil about their lives for now, just for now, feeling tranquil about their lives. But, but to be able to do that, one has to be living without too much pain. Although what I also point out is for someone like Adrian Rich, who lived with a huge amount of pain, and from her late 20s, early 30s, because she had very bad um, rheumatoid arthritis, so she was in pain, that she manages to try and use her pain to think about the pain of the world and to say, you know, I know personal pain isn't the same as political pain and so on, but somehow she can put it to use in writing these extraordinarily dramatic um, poems and, and getting feedback on that. But I'm sure that isn't such an easy thing to do, except I would return to what I said earlier, that um, we need people to care for. And that um, although we're encouraged nowadays to feel shame at being needy and dependent, a life without people to care for, whatever our age, you know, is, is a um, impoverished thing. And, and so, you know, it, it's very hard to turn that around, and not everybody, you know, is going to have people around that they can make demands on. But, but for us, rethinking how you could create a world where it is more possible to create the sorts of community spaces, and not just familial spaces, but community spaces where caring, you know, is, is an issue. You know, we used to say, how do we care for our children? That's the world we want to think about. That's what people like Anna Coote would say. How do we care for our children? No. How do we care for each other, whatever our age, is how I see it, an issue to do with ageing today, or perhaps the issue. Well, I mean, maybe one of the problems, I don't know whether you thought this through in the book, because in a way I think it's impossible to think through, is that we can conceptualise diminishment. I mean, that's, but it's very hard to conceptualise death. Oh, absolutely. And we can't, I mean, what I find difficult in this, this whole conundrum, and I presume this is just part of the human condition of uh, the kind of societies we live in, is we can't imagine that if we were in that state that we would want to be alive. And yet we know when people are in that state of extreme diminishment, they often want to be alive. Absolutely. And that is, I think, kind of another, dare I say it because of the job I have, a developmental aspect of what, what happens to some people. And often those caring for people in that state want them to be alive. And they will be devastated when they die, as well as the certain relief that the pain over. Yeah. Any last remarks? <coughs> or just little comments? Thank you for your very interesting conversation. <coughs> and what I've been thinking about is that many of the things we raise, uh, Betty Friedman in her book, The Fountain of Age, mm. addressed. Mm. 
Yes, her book was an early one, between 19 and 91, I think, and very much supported by the American government. The only thing is, um, she's very concerned to say in The Fountain of Age that um, you, know, you can age with grace and elegance and dignity and so on. Um, I think that there are certain issues that she doesn't grapple with in that book, but nevertheless, it's certainly part of our ability to talk about old age, which, you know, till very recently, we didn't. You know, old age was <laughs> one of those things we didn't talk about. Um, and, and now the conversation is beginning to happen everywhere, and that is a wonderful thing, especially for us. <laughs> but also for the young, who will grow old. <laughs> Well, I think I want to end by asking you whether you have any kind of prejudices against, let's say, the saga generation. And um, whether there's space for all the varieties of ageing that, that you... Well, I guess, is there, are there, is there space for them? Because I think the images of the saga generation are very, very challenging if you grew up in the period that we grew up. Well, not to mention all the folk tales, etc., that we were brought up on, Hansel and Gretel and the Wicked Witch was uh, present in most of them, <laughs> many of them. But I guess then people may not want to say, well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I think it's for me to say thank you, Lynn. Thank you for coming thank to speak you. at the Thank you.